uh, little change this morning. I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I usually say when I preach from, a, from an epistle, an epistle's a fancy word for letter. It's actually a Greek word for letter. But remember, when you're writing, uh, when Paul's writing an epistle to a church, it's because he's not there. He's at another church hearing things that are going on and wanting to correct them as the great leader and teacher of the church. He was the great theologian, the great church planter, Paul was. And um, so he left Athens, you know, very famously, he was in Athens in Acts chapter 17, and he had that great speech, that, that great sermon that he came and he said, I see you're a very religious people and I see all the shrines to all of the gods. I'm here to preach to you one God. I saw a shrine that said to the unknown God. It's to that God that I came to reveal to you this morning. Well, he left there after that, um, that great sermon. And it's interesting, that great sermon didn't reap a lot of converts. But he went to Corinth and there with Priscilla and Aquila, he took up his his own uh, vocation of tent making and supplied for himself during that time, and they founded this church in Corinth, one of the ancient cities of the, of the Greek empire. Of course, it was overrun by the Romans by this time. And the streets were lined in Corinth with pagan temples. This was as unlikely a place for Christianity to blossom as any on the earth. And so you might wonder that this church fell into a lot of their old pagan practices. And so... Paul wrote this letter as well as 2 Corinthians. There was even a, another letter that, uh, that he refers to that is, is not extant, and we, we don't have it, but at least three letters he wrote to this church in trying to correct them to see um, their religion and their religious practices properly and to um, um, make them understand proper doctrine, particularly with the, with the basic doctrines of our faith, one of which was the crucifixion of Christ and what it means and how it is essential to the Christian faith. So he wrote these great words about the cross and about how men view it in, relation to, in relationship to how God views it. Now, I know at this time of the year, I usually preach on the birth of Christ, and I fully intend to do that in coming weeks, perhaps even the next three. But this morning, I'm going to preach on the death of Christ and on the meaning of the cross. It was important to Paul. He felt it was of ultimate importance to the churches, and it is always of ultimate importance for us to keep the cross front and center. And by cross, we mean the bloody death of a human being for crimes he did not commit. And that human being was also God. And so I'm going to read to you this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 through 31. And so, and so Paul writes these words, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom and we 
preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, you are in Christ, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for these words preserved down through the ages by the blood of martyrs, reformers, translators. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you make them efficacious again this morning in our hearts, that we might grow by the preaching of this, your holy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many sermons have been written over the years on the offense of the cross. Friends, the cross is an offensive thing to men, and we tend to want to lessen that offense. We, attend, we want to clean up the act of crucifixion. But if we look at it historically and in the context of Scripture, we'll find there's no cleaning up of this heinous crime, of this heinous act of crucifying the Lord of glory. When we try to cleanse the offense of the cross, what we're really trying to do is cleanse ourself, is make our sin look just a little better than it really is. But the cross is always there to show us the extent of our sin and the extent of the wrath of God upon it as he punishes the Savior for our sins. And so we read these words, verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, he's not saying that he never baptized. He actually did baptize some. What he's saying is the point of my ministry is to preach the gospel, is to proclaim the ancient truths. And he says, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Friends, the cross of Christ has to emerge out of the sermon. It has to emerge out of the words of wisdom, lest the words of wisdom are just men's wisdom clouding away the truth of what Christ sacrificed on that cross. And so we come to this epistle, and the apostle who's concerned, as always, that the message of the cross be preached in the churches and in its fullness. The gospel is to be preached. And the apostle writes, not with wisdom of men. In other words, friends, whatever we add to it really takes away. Not with wisdom of men. Not what I might add to it. Not by what seems to me a prudent addition to it or a popular attraction to get people to come and hear me. Truth is not subject to fashion or praise. It does not change with the times and the whims of trivial passing concerns of men. Truth never changes, friends. The gospel is forged in the mind of God, and its strength is in the wisdom of God, a wisdom that surpasses human understanding. A wisdom that will not be searched out and credited with human credentials. It is of God. It is holy and thoroughly of God. The event 
The crucifixion is now a full 2,000 years in the past, and we who are moved by the glory of divine sacrifice are as sorrowful and amazed. You note, when we took from the sacrament this morning, at the same time we're sorrowful, but at the same time we're amazed and we're joyful that God loved us enough to sacrifice his son in our place. And so we have this strange mix of joy and sorrow at the same time. And so we're as sorrowful and amazed, we're as awestruck, and we're just as saved as any who gloried in the cross when it was first when he was first crucified. We're just as saved as they were who believed in the cross some 2,000 years ago. Nothing has changed. And it's up to us. It's up to the church. It's up to the preachers to make certain we know that the Christ on the cross always stands there as the glaring reminder that men need a Savior. To look upon the dreaded cross of torture and to see the man bloodied, pierced, broken, sentenced, condemned, and ridicule is still the only path to spiritual redemption. Certainly, that's not in the wisdom of man. If anyone ever asked me before I met Christ or was affiliated with Scripture, how would a man get to heaven? I never would have thought, well, let's kill the Son of God. That, would have been, that, that wouldn't even be concocted in the mind of man. Men were always busy in their pagan religion sacrificing animals. Even the Jews did that, sacrificing animals to please God. God sacrificed his son to please himself. It's an awesome thing. And this is why Paul says that's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of man can't even approach that. They're in two different spheres. To look upon the bleeding and pleading Savior and to know he's the son of God is still the only way to eternal life. He died for our sins. It's God's appointed way. You want to be with God in eternity? recognize that Christ died for your sins on the cross, and it was not a pretty spectacle. It's the gospel, the evangelion, the good news. Note that, the gospel, the offense of the cross. Those are Paul's words. I would never think to call preaching the word of God foolish. Paul called it that. The Holy Spirit called it that. The evangelion is the good news, even though it speaks of the death of the Son of God. So how, we should ask, Could such a spectacle as this be called good news? How may the cross of Christ be made of no effect? Paul, in this passage, it is by fellow Christians scrupling over small things. He was concerned they were scrupling over small things and forgetting the truth that was at hand, the crucial truth, the cross of Christ, as though the great victory of eternity was still to be won. And so they scrupled over personality. When Paul left, he put... um, Apollos in charge. He went to Ephesus to preach. He sent Apollos back to Corinth, and then he wrote this to them. It has been declared declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household. Now, we don't know who Chloe was, but I suggest to you that Chloe was the host of the church of Corinth, and that it was in her house. It's just a guess. He said that there are contentions among you. He said, now I say this, each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, who is Peter, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided, he asked? Was Paul crucified for you? In other words, friends, as soon as believers add to the gospel human champions, it loses its glory. It loses its luster. There's but one champion of truth, one Lamb of God, one sacrifice of sin. 
And if there was ever a man who would stand up and say, I'm here to preach you the truth, it would be Paul. But Paul won't preach the truth about Paul, he'll preach the truth about Christ. Though the cross can never truly lose its glory, friends, it can be shielded. Its efficacy is established by the, by the Lord of all glory. Its true nature, though, can be shielded from our eyes, friends, by weak preaching, by tepid and timid preachers. This apostle does not intend that such a thing should happen in this ministry. Friends, he loves the people of Corinth. They have become his friends, his brethren, his brothers in Christ. So he doesn't want this to happen in the churches that he planted. And so he admonishes the Corinthians to keep the cross of Christ front and center in their pulpits and in their hearts as he wrote to the Galatians also. When we're no longer worthy to be persecuted, it's because the offense of the cross has ceased. Friends, our message is that a man died on the cross because you are unworthy to meet God without a mediator, without a substitute. And everything that happened on that cross, when you look at it, when you look at the Christ bloodied on the cross, remember, that should be you. That's what the gospel tells us. I rather doubt that you would have found Paul wearing a little cross as an ornament around his neck. What do you think? A nice, neat, little polished gold thing? I doubt you would do that. And I won't quibble with you about this. I know we all have little jewelry and things. I made that cross, and I made this one. The boys got mad at me because I made that one on a Sunday. And I said, I think this kind of thing you can do on a Sunday. But was I scrupling? I don't know. But I doubt that Paul was wearing a little gold cross around his neck. I doubt that the early Christians would have named their charitable organizations after the cross. Blue and red and all the other crosses that we cherish today. I doubt they would have ever displayed it as a thing of beauty or a decoration for buildings or businesses or bumper stickers. I have no crosses on my car. I'm going to tell you, I learned that from Ken. I go back to that. There's no little fish on my car. Um, I don't have crosses on my person, and I don't have any in my jewelry box, and no, I don't really have a jewelry box. But I'll not quibble, as I said, about such things. I know crosses have become that, but think about it. In that age, when they saw the crucifixion, I don't think they ever thought, hey, that would make a nice earring to impress my friends. One Scottish preacher from another age had something to say of such things. And so George Morrison wrote this or rather preached this, remember there are a few great facts we cannot yield, though they run counter to the whole, the whole spirit of the age. It were better to empty a church and preach the cross than to fill it by keeping silent. It were better to fail as Paul failed with the Jews than to succeed by being a traitor to the cross. Better to be a traitor to his own people than a traitor to the cross. And that's why I look, he, he preaches, with such uncertainty on much that the church is trying to do today. Religion can never be a pleasant entertainment. When the offense of the cross ceases, it is lost. Friends, he preached this in 1902. Ours is not the only age filled with trivial amusements, apparently. They were preached by George Morrison circa 1902 in Edinburgh, Scotland. And he went on to say in the sermon, which was called The Offense of the Cross, a phrase he borrowed from Paul from Galatians. He said, written across Calvary is sacrifice. Written across this age of ours is pleasure. On the lips of Christ are the stern words, I must die. On the lips of this age of ours, I must enjoy. When I think of the passion to be rich in the judgment of everything by money, standards, 
of the feverish desire at all costs to be happy, of the frivolity, of the worship of success, and then contrast it with the pale and solemn scene upon the hill, I know that the offense of Calvary is not ceased. Friends, it is so offensive, men hate the cross. And I'm going to develop that somewhat in the sermon today. We're always so concerned that our gospel not be offensive. Now, friends, when I say that, I'm not inviting everyone to go out and be offensive. They should not be offended by us first before they hear the offense of the cross. It's the cross of Christ. If it's going to offend, let it offend. But we don't go out trying to offend. So let's parse that a little. Oh, Pastor Dan gave us all permission to be offensive to people. The apostle has no such scruple, no such fear. It's his fervent desire that the offense of the cross be truly offensive. The offense of the cross, friends, of the bleeding Son of God was surely an offense to the very God who ordained it. The cross offended God. Only with God can glory and offense be united in perfect unity. Only with God may sorrow and victory be reconciled in one and the same act. Surely Satan laughed with joy when the Savior was hung and breathed his last. I've thought of this a bit. Here's Satan. He laughed with joy when the Savior was hung, even though it was a momentary joy for him. Surely that serpent of old reasoned for himself that death couldn't hold him. He must have known. And that all who clung to him in death would just as surely cling to him in resurrected life. He knew that. He knew that for a moment, though, he enjoyed the perverse victory of seeing the Lord dying and dead like every of his enemies felt that momentary victory. We've killed him at last, the itinerant preacher of Nazareth. So nothing good can come out of Lazarus, Nazareth, and we've ridded ourselves of this pest. And so they enjoyed the perverse victory of seeing the Lord dying and dead, that the offense of it all was at the same time the power of it all. Jesus said this very thing to Pilate. Remember when he said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above? Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. In other words, friends, it's God who's behind the cross. It's God who ordained it. It's God who planned it and accomplished it. But it is and will ever be man who's guilty of it. The offense of the cross is that our sin is nailed to it. The Jews didn't want to hear that. And the torturous scene becomes the unveiling of what each of us should have suffered if the blessed substitute did not suffer in our place. And to all who would have no part in it, no part in him, the God of heaven declares that you will have no part in me. You must look upon my tortured and bloody son on that cross and recognize that that's the wrath of God upon sin, your sin. We have always had to recognize this one paradoxical truth. God is sovereign, but man is still responsible for his sin. Friends, if the cross offends you, it's because it condemns you. Your carnal eyes cannot see past the gory to reveal the glory. The apostles and those first disciples were rounded up like sheep sheep to the slaughter for the sin of declaring that the blood of Christ upon the cross was the only path to righteousness. And when I say the 12 were rounded up, it it seems John did die of old age after he got out of the prison in Patmos. But the others were, were all summarily killed for preaching the gospel. And so each of the twelve apostles were like, likewise slaughtered for their offensive message. 
the bloody gospel of the Hebrew criminal champion. They looked at this Hebrew criminal champion that the Romans crucified on the most brutal method of torture they could devise, the cross. The cross declares that the condemned Nazarene is righteous and that you and me are as dogs returning to our own vomit, offended by his blood but content with our sin. Our every good work, in the words of the prophet, are as filthy rags before a perfect deity. And nothing we can do can make this right. Nothing we can add to or perform can receive the approval of God on high. But the death of Christ received the approval. The scourge and the nail and the spit and the bruise and the blood is what is needed to make us right with God. And all we have to do, friends, is surrender to it. All we have to do is believe that our righteousness could not appease the perfect requirement of a wrathful God. And so the wrath of God was spilt upon the innocent in order to shame the guilty. And we are the guilty. And that is the offense. And so the cleansing of it all begins. We run from the purity of the bloody message of Christ. And we polish our crosses and display them as a thing of beauty is displayed. I must tell you that the very concept of the cross is an offense, or as an offense rather, is an offense to many. I'm going to tell you a story. Some of you will recognize this. Some of you went to high school with me, and some of you went after me. But I had a high school teacher. We looked up to him. I really loved this man very much. He sat in the lotus position on his desktop as we came into the room. This is back in the 70s. You think things are crazy today. (laughs) He sat on his desktop as we came into the classroom. He was a wise and learned man, and we and me looked up to him And this was long before I had met the bleeding Savior upon the cross of torture and humiliation. I knew very little of the the true gospel. But the teacher said to us that he followed after the teachings of Buddha. And why did he say this? He made it very plain. He said that a bloody and beaten man nailed to a beam was too offensive for him to think about. And so he found a meditating Buddha, fat and smiling, a much more positive example to follow instead of the Christ who can count his bones, David wrote, right? The fat, content, smiling Buddha who's one with the universe. A thinking man's God, right? Christ he knew as a man of sorrows. The Buddha he saw as a man of joy and possibilities. Plus, the Buddha had wiser things than Christ. The Buddha said, doubt everything. Find your own path. Jesus said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Buddha said, no one saves us but ourselves. We must walk our own path. Jesus said, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. What foolishness. For my teacher, it was Buddha who was the thinking man's example to follow. And so the first offense of the cross was that it offended the intellect of man. This was a smart man, and that's why I looked up to him. I wanted to be like him. Buddha said, death is inevitable. Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. What foolishness. What fools these mortal bees, these mortals be, Shakespeare said. The much-heralded intellect of man has been the greatest stumbling block to his faith. And so the apostle asks, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? In other words, friends, exchange your human wisdom for godly wisdom. They're of two different types. I've always been one to recognize, even to cherish, the power of the mind and of human reason. And why wouldn't I? Even after I came to Christ. But I recognize something, that the human intellect is a gift of God. It doesn't emerge out of us naturally. It's a gift. 
But for those who think too highly of reason and the power of their own minds, the cross of Christ stands in the way. The cross pleads the impotence, the weakness of human effort. You can't do it without me. It says to the thinker, you are wrong. It says to the do-gooder, you are evil. And to the self-satisfied, it says, you, not me, should be hanging here. As the condemned man, the criminal, hangs impaled upon that stake, it's he who forgives you. The criminal on the stake said, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. He knew he was innocent. So the cross is there. It's always there proclaiming their impotence to carve out their own destiny. It's there to block their way to a quiet conscience. Friends, there's no quiet conscience outside of the Christian faith. It's there crying out, what will you make of a bleeding and dying Savior? How will you respond to the beckoning call of a man nailed to a stake? Will you turn away from the one who said, no one comes to the Father but through me? And there he is on the cross. Why do people continually turn from him? Why does the church continually go astray of the truth and seek the gory road to the cross of Christ? Well, the apostle gives the answer. He writes this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Hold on to your human wisdom. You hold on to it all the way to hell. And so all those who come to Christ for justification before God must come with their intellects surrendered. You must recognize some of the things I concluded in life, Lord, must be wrong. He must come recognizing that the glory of man is only temporary, friends. Friends, I'll admit the glory of man is seductive. It's great. It's things people lust over. You know what the glory of man is called in the archaeological community? It's called ruins. Every great glo- the glory of Corinth in its day was gleaming white marble temples lining the road on both sides. The great temple of Aphrodite on the Acro-Corinthus promontory over the sea. All of these great temples were there. And these people are in a house church worshiping a man who died on a cross. The foolishness of the message preached. If you come to Christ, you must come recognizing that the glory of man is temporary, friends. It's made of dust as man himself is dust. Remember Paul said that Christ is the only foundation and you'll be judged for how you build on that foundation, whether you build with gold or silver or precious stones or wood, hay, and stubble, he said. What are you building with? Everything of man will perish and be buried. Friends, I believe in global warming. Peter said it. He wrote it in his epistle. The earth will melt with fervent heat. It'll happen. It'll all be gone. The glory of man with it. The greatest achievements of man will be as nothing. And what will be left? A man upon a cross. The cross will cry out for eternity as the emblem and badge of the glory of God. Friends, the cross was an offense to Lucifer. Go back to Isaiah and read about it. Lucifer, which means son of the morning, right? He dared to marvel at his own beauty. He dared to revel in his own celestial glory. And he even, as the lieutenant to the most high God, gnashed his teeth to see the son of man, the real son of light, please the father. How could this please the father? 
of heaven. And he pleased him not by celestial purity or cosmic victory, but by fleshy, bloody, earthy surrender to death. Friends, the greatest insult to deity is dying. Deity does not die. True deity cannot. What a blessed paradox. That's why Jesus came as a man, because God must die, but death cannot hold him. Because written in the spiritual laws of the universe is a man must be guilty to experience death. And this man bore no guilt. And so it's the cross that's the great equalizer. It's the cross that says even to the God that dies that death cannot hold him. It declares with authority to the cosmic enemies of God that he will live again. And to add insult to injury to the tender sensibilities of every devil in the universe that he shall take those despised and guilty and helpless humans with him when he rises from the dead. All those who believed in him will go with him. What an insult to Lucifer. Sinners will sit with him at the right hand of God. Those who love him in spite of the offense. In fact, they love him because of it. Those who cling to him in spite of the shame he suffers before the heckling spectators. And in the end... Intellect, too, comes to nothing. It, too, is blighted by the pride of men and the hope of Lucifer. It's by nature slighted by the suggestion that man is born an offense to his creator and must be atoned for with the blood of a better man. So every man may be offended at the suggestion that he cannot think himself to glory. To them it represents the curse of God. For their own law declares, Cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree. The Jews knew he was cursed, being hung and nailed to a beam. Remember, the cross of Christ wasn't a Hebrew invention. Friends, I want to develop this somewhat for you this morning. The cross was Roman. I think you know that. The Jews made quick business of death. They buried the condemned in the pile of stones that stoned him. The Romans left the the corpses upon the crosses until they naturally decayed and the stench of it all naturally diffused into the atmosphere and the parts just fell off. That was pagan justice, friends. You know, I remember an old movie. Perhaps you've seen it. There are newer versions of it, but the old one with Kirk Douglas is the one that I'm talking about. I saw it many years ago with my father. Saw all the great movies of the time with my father. And Spartacus was a Greek slave. I think most of you know the story. He was taken in conquest by the Romans. This was a full century before Christ was born. He escaped and rallied other prisoner slaves to fight against Rome, and for a time he was successful. But in the end, Rome prevailed, and this was all, as I said, a hundred years before Christ. But the last scene was puzzling to me. I remember as as a child, as a young boy, the young scene was struggling to me as a nominal Christian. The slaves were hung on crosses. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Has anyone seen this scene? They were hung on crosses by the thousands. They lined the roads of the ancient city. They were hung by the thousands. Friends, impaled alive on these crosses. And I didn't understand it. So the thousands of still living criminals of the empire lined a major highway of the ancient world so that warning may go out to all who would attempt such an offense an offense as Spartacus to rebel against Rome. Friends, Spartacus was still living and talking when his wife found him amid all the criminals who were impaled on those crosses. She could have walked for miles to find him. And he might live for another few days. Friends, this wasn't Jewish. This was thoroughly pagan. It might be days until death set in. And several weeks before the 
Corpses would fall from their perch by decay and several months before the air would clear of the stench of decomposition. And that was the warning in the ancient world. That's who invented the cross. This was such an offense to the Jews that they pronounced anathema against the practice. Jews didn't crucify anybody. In fact, the practice was so offensive that only slaves in the Roman Empire were subject to that method of capital punishment. Remember, Paul could not be crucified. He was a Roman citizen. They had to do the very kind thing of beheading him. (laughs) Well, it's a quick death as opposed to what I've just described. The Jews like speedy executions, get rid of the, the corpse quickly. The Jews calling for their Roman governor to crucify Christ was intended to add this accursed aspect of heathen perversity to the death. They wanted the death to be accursed. It was called for to add to the offense. It was called for so that every Jewish eye would turn in disgust from the spectacle of Christ on the cross. It not only was horrible and brutal, it was Roman. We're Hebrew. It was intended to heap offense upon upon offense. But even at that, the crosses of Calvary were taken down the very day before sundown. They were not left up like Spartacus's cross. They were taken down that day. You know the story. The Jews defiled themselves by calling for Roman torture when their own law held to different methods, but they dare not defy the solemn feast. Friends, it happened on Passover, the biggest feast on their calendar. Jews from every nation of the world were there in the city to see the spectacle. The day after Passover, the day the lamb was killed, was Passover. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread began. Friends, God intended that his people would rejoice. And the festivals lasted seven days. There was a Sabbath at the beginning and a Sabbath at the end. So essentially eight days, right? And they just rejoiced. But the day after Passover was a solemn feast that was to be considered like any Sabbath, and they could not let the three crosses on Calvary's hill be up for sundown because they would defile their own feast. Otherwise, they would have loved to continue the Roman torture the way the Romans intended. You just stay there until you rot away. The day after Passover, the day the lamb was killed, began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a, it was a Sabbath of the Lord and a holy convocation. That means an assembly. They got together to worship on that day. They couldn't have crosses outside the city on the south end, Calvary. The crosses were not to be found intruding into the feast days, so they were removed by sundown. The priests wanted it done. When Joseph of Arimathea and the women took down the body of Christ, they wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb. And we read, that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near, Luke writes. And then Luke writes, they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Friends, that's why they didn't go out to the tomb the next day. They weren't allowed to travel. And the next day was a, was a, uh, a weekly Sabbath. So there was an annual Sabbath followed by a weekly Sabbath for two days. They couldn't go out to the tomb. They couldn't go out to the third day. Interesting how that was prophesied hundreds of years before. The commandment came down from Moses, which said, Nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. So even though they let that Roman tradition intrude to add offense to the Jews by crucifying one of them, they wouldn't let it intrude upon the solemn feast. There's one more detail that's always interested me. Note that the women prepared spices and fragrant oils to anoint the body of Christ, right? It was to remove the stench, which was the offense of the cross. Remember when Lazarus was in the tomb and Jesus came and it was four days, not three, 
And he said, roll the stone away. And they protested and they said, no, he's been there four days. It's going to be horrible, filthy. And it was, the, and it was, the, uh, it was Passover week. If he went into the tomb, he'd have defiled himself and he couldn't attend the feast. And they would all be considered unclean for the feast. They were concerned about such things. And so the women put together spices and fragrant oils to put them on the body to sort of cleanse it, to sort of take away the offense of death. You notice they never were allowed to do that? It didn't happen. They went to, on the third day, the body wasn't there. It didn't need cleansing. It didn't need spices. It was anointed by God, the body of Christ. The anointing of the women was never to happen. The body rose from the dead. The stench never emerged because the body did not see corruption. But the offense of the cross remained, friends. It would not be perfumed over by human sensibilities. It's the offense that is the glory. It's the offense that the Lord would have remained. Where face to face with the fact that the offense the Lord endured portrays in all the ugliness of human sin. And he declares that we have to look at it. That's what it looks like. We dare not cover it over or forget the horror of it. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And so I'm concerned today that for so many people, for so many churchgoers, in fact, and even for so many believers that we tend to trivialize what God has glorified and that we sanitize what God revealed in all of its gore and ugliness. Just like Jesus in the desert with the devil, God will not be tempted to yield to our natural sensibilities. The cross was the greatest crime in history. Its luster and glory is in its offense. Think for yourselves how you might have responded to the cross in that time. Imagine this. I'm going to set up the two choices for you the day it happened. The Passover was being celebrated in the city, friends. The city's surrounded by a wall. The temple's here. The outside wall's here and Calvary's outside. Visible, close, but outside the city walls. The Jews from every corner of the world were there for the feast. The songs of the occasion were being sung by memory, by the people who memorized them. They were there. Jesus went to this, he went to this Passover service every year of his life. The ram's horns, the shofarim of Joshua, were blowing from the temple parapets. The priestly choir was singing the great hallel of the Jews, the joyous compilation of excerpts from the Psalms. The lambs were being roasted, and the children were being regaled with the stories of old, the stories of old Moses and the Israelites and the Pharaoh and the Red Sea. But on the other end of the city, outside the city gates, there was another spectacle. They could hear the singing in the distance. They could hear the celebrating in the city. And the priests and the scribes were concluding another bit of business so that they too could get back to the feast and the singing and the ancient joy of Israel and the roasted lamb and the mixed wine and the seasonal bread. They were ridding society of a blasphemer, a blasphemer who claimed to be the very God that they were celebrating on the other end of the city, within the temple walls and on the temple steps. The little lamb was being slit. The paschal lamb was on the altar of sacrifice. But the lamb of God was on the real altar, the hill of Calvary. The little lamb was being slit and bled and prayed over and roasted whole, its bones not broken, its body disposed of before sundown according to the law. But the lamb of God was beaten and stretched and cursed over 
and his bones also unbroken, and his body also interned before sundown. So think of it. Where would you be content to be on that day? It would be so easy to say, I want nothing to do with that spectacle when I have the ancient festival of my people to enjoy with my children. Where would you be? How many of the people at the Passover were there a week before at the triumphal entry who hailed the son of David when he came in on the colt into the city? Where would you be? It's so offensive. You can see why people would turn away. So think of it. Where would you be? Who among us would endure the offense, the heathen torture of Christ, when all the comforts and joys of the people were being celebrated within the city walls? Indeed, friends, the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. The message of the cross is offensive and unlikely and so unnecessary. That's the wisdom of man. For them it was either offensive or just an unfortunate distraction from the festival. Too bad we had to deal with this business at such a solemn occasion, right? And let me tell you, friends, everyone remembers the crucifixion of Christ and almost no one remembers the events of Passover. Oh, the foolishness of it all, they must have thought. I don't want my children to see something that offensive and gory. Verses 22 through 31, I'll conclude with Paul's words. Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Friends, we preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. We would never have come up with that scheme to save our souls. It's beyond human comprehension. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Christ became all those things. He became our wisdom. He became our righteousness. He became our sanctification, means we were set apart where he was for God's personal use. That's the church. As it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would clarify for us all of the themes of the crucifixion of Christ, O Lord, that we might see clearly and know conclusively that he is the Christ, and he died for our sins, and we are saved by his sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.